Okay, so you should have a handout uh, coming around. Let's just do a few minutes of uh, recap. We built yesterday uh, uh, some foundations for what today is going to be the, uh, the exposition of what I'm calling the magnetic points. And I know a number of you are saying they're looking forward to actually hearing what these magnetic points are. Well, you know, all good things come to those who wait. We're nearly there. But we had to do this foundational work which was really a, a theological anthropology, a reformed theological an anthropology, where we established some, some things that, again, um, uh, James Squared this morning have been uh, helping us with in terms of the, the fact that, uh, according to uh, Scripture, human beings uh, made in the image of God suppress the truth, uh, but with common grace, the reality of the world there's this uh, tension, this paradox, I suppose, that human beings are both running to God and running away from God at the same time. That they both know and they do not know. And all I want to do in this uh, session is to take um, the framework of J.H. Uh, Bavink, so the nephew of Herman Bavink, we'll be hearing more about J.H. tomorrow, but to take um, the framework that he calls the magnetic points, which I think is based upon this anthropology, and really repristinate it and apply it to our particular context. And the whole point of this is not that the examples that I'm going to give you uh, are, they're just illustrative. What I want you to be doing is to be thinking, well, if this anthropology makes sense, if this framework makes sense, what does this mean for the people that you are ministering to in your context? So this is meant to be a very practical tools that you might be able to use uh, in your evangelism stroke apologetics. And again, I do not see much of a difference between those two things. We are presenting Christ to people, and that is uh, the goal. Now, J.H. Bavink, uh, he's a missionary, he's uh, in what was called then Java, and he's, uh, he's got his uh, Bible in one hand, uh, he's got his kind of uh, observations of especially um, Eastern religions uh, on uh, the other hand, and uh, he, uh, he has this uh, uh, kind of understanding that he looks at the world religions and he says, Look, it seems to me that although there's huge dissimilarity or there's huge differences between the way people think and worship, there are some commonalities. He says, it appears that humanity always and everywhere has fallen back on definite ideas and presumptions and that these ideas and presumptions always resurface in surprising ways whenever uh, they may have been temporarily repressed for various reasons. This is a universal religious consciousness that remains indestructible in the midst of all disturbing and confusing developments. Now, let's do, let me just uh, waggle on the tea a little bit just to talk about what, uh, what we're talking about in terms of religious consciousness. So, my understanding is that this idea of religious consciousness fits precisely into the category we were talking about yesterday, running to God and running away from God, knowing and not knowing, idolatry, but based upon the suppressed truth. So I don't want you to be thinking, oh, religious consciousness is a really positive thing that Bavink's saying. Religious consciousness is the way that we suppress and substitute the truth. That's what Bavink means by the religious consciousness. Um, 
So again, it's not really the handshake to the Athenians, it's the rugby scrum. It's the unknown God. It's the way that the poets are quoted, in him we move and have our being, we are his offspring. Their manifestations of idolatrous religious consciousness. And Babakin is saying, and I am saying, yes, this religious consciousness comes in all kinds of different shapes and sizes historically, according to uh, the religion you come from or the context or your background. But there is this indestructible religious consciousness that always uh, manifests itself somewhere because at the end of the day, we are human beings. And we can suppress it, we can try and get rid of it, but it always has to pop out somewhere, however much we need to do the excavation. Now, Bavinck's main kind of application of the magnetic points is to the other religious traditions that he was coming across. What I'm trying to do in my work is take that framework and say, how does this religious consciousness work and how can we present Christ to people? How can we do the confrontation and the connection in our kind of post-secular religious context. That's what we're trying to do. Just to say just a few words on this word religion or religious religiosity. Um, now, I, I could give a whole kind of lecture on this. I, let me just give you some things. Where, so, the way in our context, in our kind of late modern Western context, we use the term religion in a certain way. And I want to argue that actually religion does not exist. Religion is a Western construct. Pre-Reformation, no one would use the word religion in the way that we use it. For me, and I'm going to go back to basics here, when I use the word religion, I mean the way that Augustine uses religion in his book, uh, De Vera Religione. Religion is worship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is what religion means, and you have two types. You have true religion and false religion, and that covers all the categories. The way that we use religion, we either talk about world religions, which again is a Western construct. Remember, there is no such thing as Hinduism. Hinduism is a whole load of religious traditions that were kind of, well, that Western understanding of Hinduism is, is a colonization of that term. And this is where postmodern and late modern philosophy is actually quite helpful to us in saying there is no kind of religion, because where you have religion, then you have the secular. I do not believe that is the case in terms of Reformed theology. We are all religious. We either have true religion or what Francis Turretin calls false religion. And that's very important So, um, in terms of how we understand uh, religion. And there's lots more that I could uh, say on that. So I'm using it in, a, in this kind of theological sense. So when Babbing talks about religious consciousness, he's talking really about this way that we have uh, suppressed and substituted the truth, even though we are still made in God's image. So what does this look like? Well, Babbing calls it the magnetic points. And this is the bit in religious consciousness, the kind of the book uh, he writes on this where he uses this phrase. He uses it a few times. He says, There seems to be a kind of framework within which human religions need to operate. There appear to be definite points of contact around which all kinds of ideas crystallize. There seem to be quite vague feelings. One might better call them direction signals that have been actively brooding everywhere. Perhaps this can be expressed thus. 
there seem to be definite magnetic points that time and again irresistibly compel human religious thought. Human beings cannot escape their power, but must provide an answer to those basic questions posed to them. So, let me just say that again. All these magnetic points are, are a kind of a framework or a scaffold by which we understand this unpacking of God's images suppressing and, and exchanging the truth of God for a lie. This is what the magnetic points are. And uh, in that sense, they're an artificial construct. But what's going to be really important is that I'm, I'm going to argue, and I think Bavink argues, that they are none other than the unpacking of that Romans 1 passage that says the invisible um, qualities of God have been revealed, his eternal power and divine nature. And the magnetic points are none other than just a, a particular configuration of those things. And these magnetic points, Bavink lists five, they're not, you don't compartmentalize them. We, we need to go through them in a particular order, but they all kind of are perspectives on the one religious consciousness. So they all kind of bleed into one another. All of them contain the others, but we have to start somewhere. We have to go in a kind of linear way through. But they're all aspects on one religious consciousness. So for the first bit of this um, uh, presentation, I'm going to give you a very short summary of what the magnetic point is, and then I'm going to give you some contemporary examples where I think we see this magnetic point manifested. And then, in the second half, I'm going to show you how I think Jesus Christ both subverts and fulfills each one of those magnetic points. Remember, the whole point of this is, how do we get traction to be able to present Christ to people who, it seems, have no interest in hearing about him at all? And I'm saying there's always a point of contact because, people of Athens, I see you are very religious. Now, these are my... Um, uh, this is my nomenclature. This is my way of kind of... Um, Bavink doesn't use these terms for the magnetic points. These are my terms that I've kind of uh, adopted and uh, adapted. Um, and um, uh, an illustrator friend of mine, Jason Ramasamy, who I'm going to be working with uh, next year in my new role, um, he really liked this idea. So he was on the train with his iPad and he just kind of sketched out some pictures. So if you like the pictures, these little illustrations of the magnetic points... So, the first magnetic point is this. Totality. Here's the question. Here's the, um, the, the itch that has to be scratched by human beings. Is there a way to connect? All human beings have an innate sense of totality. That we're cogs in a much bigger machine. That in somehow we're cosmically interconnected. And because of that, Human beings struggle. Oh, man, do we struggle between two things. On the one hand, at sometimes we just think we're small, insignificant, nothings in the universe. It's that bit where you're in the sea and the ocean's ahead of you and you get that funny wobble in your tummy. Maybe it's just me with my existential angst. You get that wobble that says, who am I in this vast universe? I'm a nothing. I'm insignificant. And yet at the same time, there are, and, and at other times, when we connect with the bigger reality, we suddenly realize that we're part of something much bigger, and that gives us significance. 
We're significant when we belong to other things, other parts of the creation, other people. And so at that, those times, we enjoy communal awareness. And we crave connection all the time. And we feel abandoned after we've experienced it. And we crave for it again and again. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know anyone who thinks like that. But listen, listen to these examples. Let me give you a, an example from a, another world faith that might then lead us into some more kind of secular examples. Now, of course, in other religions, it could be this idea of satori or enlightenment in Japanese Zen Buddhism. Or maybe this explains why when you talk to a Hindu believer, they, they do not understand why you would want to convert from Hinduism to Christianity. Why would you want to do that? There's no need. Now, I think that's because they have a particular understanding of totality. Here's um, a prominent British Hindu, Satish Sharma, who says this. Listen to this. When the rain stopped falling, the ocean gazed out at the puddles on the shore, and the puddles gazed at each other and at the ocean. All faiths which are busy converting are stuck in puddle vision, trying to separate the ocean into puddles and then gathering puddles to make a big puddle. They are thus revealed as being unaware of the shared essence, i.e. water. If you are aware of the essence, you see the futility of the conversion game. We're all part of this one interconnected system. Why would you want to jump from one puddle to the other? Now let's talk about Facebook. In 2012, this is 2012, I know if you're... Uh, you know, beyond a certain age, lower or older, you might not engage with Facebook. But it's a, it's a social media platform. I say that because my kids don't use it at all now. It's, I'm so old by using it. Um, in 2012, Facebook celebrated its billionth user with a campaign called this, The Things That Connect Us. Now, there was a big kind of multimedia video, but this is the script. Listen to this. Chairs. Chairs are made so that people can sit down and take a break. Anyone can sit on a chair, and if the chair is large enough, they can sit down together and tell jokes or make up stories or just listen. Doors, doorbells, airplanes, bridges. These are people, these are things people use to get together. And that are why these things are like Facebook, so they, could, they can open up and connect about ideas and music and other things that people share. Dance floors, basketball, a great nation. A great nation is something people build so can, they can have a place where they belong. The universe. It's vast and dark, and it makes us wonder if we are alone. So maybe the reason we make all of these things is to remind us that we are not. Now, I would think Mark Zuckerberg has not been drinking from the well of J.H. Bavinck. I might be wrong. But that idea of connection. What about the recent trend in tracing people's family histories or our, our own family history? Or the popularity of programs like Who Do You Think You Are? We want to know that we belong to something bigger. We want to know that we have roots. We want to know that we belong. Or what about the rise in kind of conspiracy theorists? 
Often people believe if they're part of something much, a bigger narrative, it provides a greater significance. If you think you have the ability to, or you're awake to the way that the, the world really works. Or what about Comic-Con or Pride Parades? Or anything where those who feel like outsiders are now joining together. For those participating, there's a real feeling of invulnerability around these sorts of events because you are know that you are one little person, insignificant and vulnerable, but you're surrounded by people on your side. This is the experience of uh, one of my students who's been converted out of a very strong LGBTQ um, uh, culture in, an, in another city in the UK. And the reason they went to that was because they felt ostracized, but when they were marching with the other pride people, they felt that they belonged. This was their people. You know that these are people that you'd never speak to again, but they'd have your back. More generally, why have we pined for stadium sporting events or music concerts during the pandemic? Because we know that we share something in mass movements like this, which you get more than just singing in a bedroom with your hairbrush. What about the avalanche of adverts on TV and strangely in London public transport for dating agencies? Why are dating agencies so popular at the moment? eHarmony, Match.com, Silver Singles. In the above us only sky world, romantic relationships now often bear the weight that communion with God the transcendent being used to bear. People therefore ironically have a stronger desire to have a much deeper need for what they call the perfect romantic relationship, to connect with the one. It's this kind of human relationship that's believed to come closest to communion with the other that people at a deep subconscious level know that they've been created for. So people are looking for the one where they can find connection. Now, you can think of all kinds of other examples. I hope you will be about the people that you know or the cultural artifacts that you're engaging with all the time. How do they display that totality? How do people around you want to connect? Secondly, norm. Is there a way to live? Now, we've already had this already at this conference. A vague sense that there are rules to be obeyed. People know and accept that there are moral standards and codes which come from outside of them to which they must adhere. There is an appreciation at some level of norms of behaviour which apply to all people. And this brings with it a responsibility to live up to those norms. Now, of course, J.H. Bavinck's writing 70 years ago, and surely you might say these things are dated. Aren't we less concerned with norms now? No, but we're so norming at the moment. It's just that those norms have multiplied and mutated. A friend of mine was in their local coffee shop the other day. A lady walks in pushing a buggy. As she walks up to the counter, she asks, are your straws paper or plastic? Fortunately, the owner said paper, at which the lady said, I'm so glad I can drink here. To be low plastic, vegan, socially aware is a new norm that we feel we need to obey and live up to. And what's more, social media, not around in Bavinck's time, whips up and magnifies the norm. Remember, today it's not enough to be virtuous, we need to be seen to be virtuous. Let me give you another, just quite mundane example where we see the norm working and how there's tension within the norm. Work appraisal systems. Go with me on this. Many secular employers 
officially praise and promote innovation and risk-taking. And they say they want their employees to be free to be themselves, to free, be free to express themselves and work in ways that suit them. Each week, they're told that's what they are to aspire to. However, every year, the appraisal system insists on evaluating each person on a static grid of numerical scores that makes no room for nuances in job descriptions or personality. Everyone must work in exactly the same way in order to get a good score. And the appraisal score then determines one's pay for the next 12 months. The practical upshot is that employees spend the whole year in a state of tension between following the rules of individualism and the rules of the appraisal statistics. What about clothing? A friend of mine was a goth in their youth. And part of the appeal was being different to the norm, but the other side is that everyone has to be different together in the same way. And the goth rules, I'm told, are very different to the rules of wider culture, but they are there. For example, did you know, really well-established goths can wear baby pink because it's ironic. But if you wore baby pink and you don't have the right credentials, you're shown up as being not fitting in. The pleasure here comes from not conforming to certain societal norms, but you still want to conform to the rules of the subculture because you know you need to fit in somewhere. Norm, is there a way to live? Thirdly, deliverance. Is there a way out? There is something not quite right with the world is a common and little disputed notion. There's finitude, brokenness, wrongdoing in the world, and the problem of suffering consistently confronts us. We mourn for a paradise lost. We long for deliverance from these evils, craving redemption. I think we were in a conversation this, this lunchtime about the uh, nostalgia. I mean, th this idea of deliverance is a, is a long-standing one. I mean, it, it goes back to the Romantics. One of the great facts about the Romantics is that they used to build ruins, you build ruins because you look back to a time which was different. This is why the Romantics love the Arthurian legends and all of these things. It's the paradise lost, and how do we have this paradise regained? We know, don't we, says this magnetic point, that something has gone wrong. I mean, C.S. Lewis talks about it in terms of this idea of sensuk, longing, that un translatable and mystical sense of longing and yearning for happiness in the face of reality that does not provide happiness. The problem is, we can't work out what the problem is, let alone the solution. If our ultimate problem is ignorance, then of course deliverance comes through education. If public health is the issue, then of course a national health service must be the saviour. If belonging and loss of identity is the problem, then maybe nationalism will bring deliverance. If discrimination is the problem, then justice is the answer. Or is that education again? Or perhaps the problem is not out there, the problem is within me. In a very popular book called The Chimp Paradox, the psychiatrist Steve Peep, uh, Peters, he's uh, transformed the sporting careers of many heroes that we, uh, that we follow. In the chimp paradox, the model is that we ourselves are the problem, but we are the solution to our problem. 
He says, we long to be in a place where we're not controlled by our desires, what he calls the inner chimp, and we must save ourselves from our own brain. Interestingly, the impulsive part of our brain, our chimp, Peters argues, is not even you. Similarly, isn't identifying as of a different age or sex or ethnicity, yet another way of escaping giving reality and delivering me from the labels given to me? Now, you might all say, well, this is heavy stuff. I need to escape. Well, there you go. There's deliverance from the question of deliverance itself. A pastor friend of mine is discipling two 30-year-old men who are addicted to the mobile phone game Clash of Clans just because they don't want to deal with the reality of the world. That's another form of deliverance. 30-year-old men. And of course... We like to think that we're divine, but the stubborn fact of death casts a long shadow over this magnetic point of deliverance. Even before COVID, I know a lot of pastors who have had a lot of conversations with Christians and non-Christians for whom sickness and death is their main anxiety point. One person was anxious because his dad and sister had had cancer, so he might get it as well. Another had a heart attack. Another's lost a baby in a miscarriage. Another because she grew up in a family where her sister was in and out of hospital. For these people, dark forces are always at them, convincing them they're going to die soon. Every cough or lump or pain is dreadful. Increasingly, there's utter confusion and fear. A friend of mine had a long conversation with a dog walker recently who was struggling to come to terms with the death of a loved one and had dabbled with spiritualist things. When my friend spoke of the resurrection, this well-read urbanite responded, but how can we know if only someone could come back from the other side to tell us for certain? We sense that death is both desperately sad yet frighteningly inevitable. So, deliverance. Fourthly, destiny. This is my favourite magnetic point. Although humans know themselves to be active players in the world, there's a nagging feeling that they're also passive participants in somebody else's world. J.H. Babbing has this wonderful little phrase. He says that people both think that they lead their lives and undergo their lives. Maybe some of you think that you're leaders more than undergoers, but some people we know, some people think, I'm free, I can do what I want. I'm going to burst through the barriers. Other people that we know say, what's the point? It's all been kind of determined. I've got no freedom. Babbing said, we struggle with that. Humanity struggles with that all the time. Of course, it's a massive philosophical problem that's gone down since the beginning of history. What's the relationship between kind of fate and freedom? Now, the way that I've seen this, and this was, uh, I've done some more work on this. I did a, a long article on this, was a student um, heard this, and uh, they gave this example. Um, and I, I, I told James earlier on that I was going to tell him this of being an, an ex-medic. It will come to the medic bit in a minute. Anyway, this person was working in an office. And um, they said that when they're working in the office, you must never say in the office, never, you must never say this, the phones are quiet. When I first started, I thought this was a bit of a joke, but it's considered deadly serious. You do not say the phones are quiet. I've been interested to try and talk out with some colleagues because they are clear they have no belief in any sort of higher power 
and they're perfectly rational people. At the same time, if you say the phones are quiet, it will result in something or someone making the said phones busy and unbearable. We simultaneously have no control over how our phone shifts are going to go. You'll just have a day like that. And yet we are responsible for our own and others' bad shifts because you said it was quiet and that made it busy. There's a level of discomfort about breaking this rule that goes beyond amusement or social discomfort, and especially since only one or two people are working on the phones at any time, does result in real tension whenever someone curses another person's shift. One interesting thing about this power behind phone calls is that it's clearly malevolent. There's no good power responsible for quiet shifts or pleasant customers, just bad ones. Now, I thought this was absolutely bonkers until you realised this is everywhere. My son, he's a policeman in East London, and he said it's completely true. You never say over the radio, it's quiet tonight. You say it's Q. You use the, the initial. And if you say quiet, you'll be in big trouble. And I found peer-reviewed medical journals now that have been... I think this one I found was a spoof. It was from the Royal College of Surgeons, which said something like, we did a, a test as to whether saying quiet made the shifts busy or not. But I found other articles which have quoted this article. The superstition is everywhere. You do not say quiet. It's this idea that there's some force or control. I think it's this irresistible idea of destiny that explains our fascination with semi-scientific solutions that promise to explain us and give us profit-like knowledge of the future. Why are so many people interested in personality tests? Promise to show us why we behave like we do. Although we're suggesting that our behavior and tastes are bound up by our type. So 23andMe is a DNA kit you can use which will tell you if you are going to develop a number of diseases in the future. My, my biological sister did one of these Know Your Ancestry tests. Now, my, I've got a um, mixed ethnicity. My dad was from Guyana in South America. Um, so apparently, as well as my mum's Scandinavian heritage, she comes from Yorkshire, and my dad being Indo-Guyanese, so South Asian heritage, apparently... I am also 1.9 Ashkenazi Jew and 2.9 Nigerian. Now, the point is, how do I live with that information? Does that explain me? Does that explain who I am, what I'm meant to do? It's that kind of determinism. Am I free from that? So this idea of destiny is a key magnetic point. So we've had our four magnetic points so far. Totality. Is there a way to connect? Norm, is there a way to live? Deliverance, is there a way out? Uh, destiny, is there a way we control? And overarching all of those, what you might call the super magnetic point, is, well, Bavin calls it um, the higher power. I'm going to call it that. But it's this question, is there a way beyond? The more you push into those four magnetic points, you come to this bigger question. Is above us only sky? Is there a reality beyond the reality? Here's what Bavink says. The line of totality and destiny suggests that people live with a sense of their insignificance, being bound and lacking any power. A human being is merely a ripple on the ocean of the universe, and the great cosmic forces simply play their capricious game with us. A person is nothing, 
is merely considered to be a cell in the greater context of all things, has no individual existence, is only a little spark in the raging cosmic fire. The other line of norm and deliverance evokes thoughts of freedom, of being distinct from nature, of individuality, of accountability, of guilt, and of hope of being set free. Human beings here are unique entities, each very special, and hold their own destinies in their hands. Each one is a sort of micro-god, a god in miniature, possessing his or her own existence responsibly and potentials. And at the intersection of these two lines of thought, destiny within a totality and freedom to act and be delivered, lies the awareness of being related to a higher power. The higher power is at the same time the deepest meaning of the whole, the bearer of the cosmic laws, the energizer of the norm, the helper towards salvation. That intersection of these two ones is obviously the heart of religious consciousness. Precisely this is where the unfathomable mystery of, human, of being human lies. Precisely there is we find the essence of all religion. So this fifth magnetic point is, that, is, is the higher power. Now, the, the, I just want to spend a couple of moments on this final higher power, on this final magnetic point, because as we've noted this morning, I don't want to deny 2,000 years of Christian history or world history, which means that when we talk about a higher power, we need to be very careful how we understand this. I suppose lots of people, um, Alan de Botton and, and, uh, and others, have spoken about the need for what we might call secular religious experiences. And you may know people like this. These are people who have no interest in, um, in God or the Bible or any Christian theology, and yet they, they want some kind of experience that maybe just shows them that there's a, a, a reality beyond the reality. A friend of mine's dad felt something when they visited the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Now, my favourite and peculiarly British illustration is a recent phenomena called champing. And champing is a kind of portmanteau word between camping and church. So derelict churches where the um, Church Preservation Society want to make some money um, rent out the church so people can camp in the church for the night. It's called champing. If you don't believe me, it was on the ITV News last year. Paying to camp overnight in historical churches. Now, one, in one local news report on champing, a middle-class mum was interviewed. And she noted that she wanted her and her children to champ so they could experience waking up in the morning with natural light streaming through the stained glass windows. Another champer, champion, mentioned the importance of champers respecting the consecrated status of these historical buildings. And there's this very bizarre conversation here between the journalist and the champer. Listen to this. Journalist. So people who come here, you welcome anybody, but they've got to be quite well behaved because they're the Ten Commandments on the wall. Champa. Well, that's an original part of the church, but as champers, we always ask that people respect the building because it's still a consecrated building. Journalist peering at the plaque. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So if people come here for a naughty weekend, it's only with their own wives and husbands. Champa, nervously. You can't say that. They both laugh. Crazy. <laughs> but it's that weird kind of these kind of secular religious experiences, which is why I've, I've spoken to people in, in the last 24 hours over this, over 
not just an, uh, the rise of the occult or the interest in horoscopes, but this kind of pushing towards some kind of transcendent experience. Is there a way uh, beyond? And so it's a kind of a, a very strange, because I think that of the history of, the, of Christianity, it's a very strange secularized Christianity at that point. Now, those five magnetic points, I would argue, are simply a very helpful framework for understanding what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 when he says the, those invisible characteristics of divine power um, and eternal nature. All the magnetic points are, are just a, a, an unpacking of that. Um, you can come up with more or less magnetic points if you want to. I think these are particularly helpful. I think they do nail something. That as human beings, we really struggle not to be dependent on something or someone. And as human beings, we really struggle not to be accountable or responsible to something or someone. And Bavink, I think, is saying these are indestructible. And they're going to come in different varieties and different shapes and sizes. But the magnetic points are always there. Now, if we had time and we don't, then this is in a, if this was a normal uh, classroom, I'd get you to go into small groups and discuss this, but um, I've been told that that's not going to happen. So I want you to kind of uh, think about, uh, as you go from here, uh, the people that you know, the people that you interact with in everyday life, how are they manifesting those magnetic points? And I think it will be a real hook, a real help. Because remember, these are people who you think have got no interest in the gospel, and yet they are religious beings. They can't but manifest these magnetic points. Now, here is the $64,000 question. How do we connect and confront the gospel of Jesus Christ to these magnetic points? And again, Bavink is, doesn't really go into too much detail here. He gives some kind of thoughts, which I am trying to expand. So, in our last uh, section here, and I want to do this because I know this is a, a, a rich theological conference by introducing, I suppose, a theological discipline that's been lost in our uh, uh, um, curriculums around. And it's called elenctics. And elenctics in Bavinck's time or in J.H. Bavinck's time was a kind of a version of apologetics but was as part of, a, you could call it missionary apologetics. It comes from that word group in, uh, in the New Testament of unmasking, bringing, unmasking sin, bringing to shame. Um, it's, uh, it's pneumatological in that it's the Holy Spirit's job in John 16, 8. But it's this idea of what our job is, is to, is to say to people, what have you done with God? It's, it's a, the unmasking of sin. And I'd love to see a kind of a, a revitalization of elenctics, um, it's not going to be particularly politically correct, but it's a vital job. It's the same word that's used in Titus 1.9 in terms of um, rebuking error. But it's this idea of unmasking sin. And this is what I think we do in apologetics. We, in a gentle and respectful way, we are bringing people to shame. We're saying, what have you done with God? And at this point, we come to this other phrase that I've, I've used a lot or built upon. And it's by uh, this 20th, uh, 20th century missionary guy called Hendrik Kramer. 
Hendrik Kramer, as I said yesterday, was a, a, this kind of polymath who was very influential at the World Missionary Conferences at Edinburgh in 1910 and then at Tamboran. Um, and what was happening at the time was that people were starting to say, well, I think that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But maybe other religions, maybe they're stepping stones to Christ. So you have books like The Unknown Christ of Hinduism um, and all of these, uh, th- these other kind of um, um, uh, works. And Kramer hated this. Kramer said, the gospel is not the fulfillment of other religions. The gospel is something completely other. But then in one um, essay, he just, and he only uses this phrase once. I've been trying to kind of build a career on it. Um, he, says, uh, he says, look, I don't like this word fulfillment, but if you want to talk about fulfillment, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the subversive fulfillment of culture, of religion, of religiosity, of idolatry. Here's the idea, uh, and again, we don't have time now, but uh, 1 Corinthians 1 is the, is the passage that I always go to. On the one hand, the cross is foolishness. It is a radical, big, fat no sign to the world's ways. What God thinks um, wise, the world thinks foolish and vice versa. We preach Christ crucified. It's a contradiction. It's a confrontation of the world's ways of being. Amen. That's what it says. And yet... Why then in that passage in 1 Corinthians 1 does Paul distinguish between two ethnic groups, Jews and Greeks? Jews look for power, signs. Greeks look for wisdom. If we just preach Christ crucified, why does Paul bother to to, to kind of um, identify those two groups in a way that at the end of that passage in 1 Corinthians 1, he says that Jesus is power, Jesus is wisdom, not in the way that you expect A crucified Messiah is subversive to Jews and Greeks, but Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the power of God. So this idea of subversive fulfillment, I think, is, is a very important understanding. And in my experience, some Bible believing Christians, they're really good at the subversion, the confrontation, they're not great at the fulfillment. Others are great at the fulfillment, they're not great at the confrontation. But I think what we see in Acts 17 is precisely subversive f- fulfillment. Paul, Paul doesn't condone, their, uh, condone uh, their idolatry, but he has to start somewhere and he shows them how the best of their hopes and thoughts and aspirations are subversively fulfilled in Christ. And so um, if some of you have read the, the little book I've written, Plugged In, gives a way in which we can kind of use that as a model in our own understanding of culture around us. Enter, explore, expose, evangelize. We, we need to step into the world. As uh, James said uh, this morning, we need to listen to the story that people are telling about themselves. As Paul did, he walks around and looks carefully at their objects of worship. That's what we need to do with the people around us. We need to search for elements of grace and the idols attached to them. We need to expose, we need to show up those idols as destructive frauds. And we need to show off the gospel as, as G, of Jesus Christ as subversive fulfillment. Now, how do we do that in terms of the magnetic points? So let's do this last section now. So we remember we've got our magnetic points. Everyone is manifesting those points all the time. 
Bavink says this, the gospel of Christ addresses people and rips open their religious consciousness. People want to suppress and push away the gospel in the worst way, just as they repeatedly had done with God. But it can happen that God causes their heart to submit. Then all the engines of resistance are switched off and people listen. Then the king of glory makes his entrance. The everlasting doors of the understanding are thrown open. And this is what we call the new birth. And at this point, friends, we need to remember this. And I do take this observation from something that Sinclair said years ago. It, Sinclair said it as an introductory remark, but it's really it's stuck in my memory for so long. That at the end of the day, we do not present people a philosophy or a worldview, we present people a person. And uh, Sinclair, if you remembered, you, you talk about um, Philip and the Ethiopian, how in the ESV or the NIV, it says something like, and Philip began to explain to him the gospel of Jesus. But it's the King James, and Philip offered unto him Jesus, showed unto him Jesus, a person. And so the magnetic points are supremely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That doesn't deny what Sinclair was saying yesterday about the gospel of God, that big picture. And we talked about that in terms of Acts 17, that big picture's there. But I'm particularly interested in how we show how Jesus Christ, how the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we present people Jesus as the way where they, they can see how the magnetic points that they've been, they've got this itch that they're scratching. This is what human beings are like. They've got an itch that it's scratching and it's getting redder and redder. And we present Christ to them. Jesus Christ is the way that we connect. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Sporting and music events are fun, but they don't last, and people get that. You sing your heart out at Wembley as if you're one huge connected organism, but then you totally ignore each other on the tube on the way home. Remember that advert we had at the beginning yesterday, Ubuntu. I am because we are. But what happens when we are doesn't agree with me? Then we're disconnected. Or being a Londoner. But what's the quality of that connection? Does it bind us together? Does it give us the world we want? British culture seems increasingly fragmented with the loss of both common vision and community. Pubs are closing. Working men's clubs are gone. Where do people actually meet each other? Every week we're told that loneliness is a massive problem and people are dying alone. People overwork so they have no time for community, but they don't have a community to go to. People move to an area, a different area so often, no one even knows their neighbours, let alone loves them. A friend of mine noted they've lived in many flats where they've heard the feet of people upstairs but had no idea what they even look like. And what about the search for the one, that perfect romantic relationship, the person who will complete me and give me ultimate satisfaction and connection? Well, we may never find such a person and remain incomplete, 
or we think we found the person, but we've loaded so many expectations and dreams on them that when they frustrate us, when they disappoint us and fail us, we might be tempted to think they weren't the one after all. It might be time to disconnect and look for a newer model. But disconnection is often costly and damaging. Commitment to human relationships is good, but overcommitment leads to all kinds of problems. But let me present to you Jesus. Let me present to you the Christian life and worldview. The Christian teaching on the human being means that we don't constant, constantly have to flip-flop between our sense of insignificance and significance. Remember, Bavink says in the totality, we're struggling, whether it's philosophically or a very street, mundane level. We think we're nothing, and then we think we're everything, and we can't decide. This is where Christian doctrine is so crucial. The image of God, the doctrine of the image of God, deals with that problem. Why? Well, because we're not God. We're images of God. So in that sense, we are insignificant. But we're images of God. We have amazing significance. Just that little doctrine blows the problem out of the water. We're created by God. We're created in God's image. We're created from the earth. We want connection. That's what Adam means, from the earth. Therefore, we can affirm our desire to crave connection because we're part of creation. And we've been created for relationships, not with creation in general, but with other human beings. We've been created with a purpose. And yet something has gone terribly wrong. Although we crave connection, we're not connected, are we? We're disconnected in so many ways. We're disconnected from within ourselves. We don't know who we are. We don't know what makes me, me. We've lost our identity. We're at war inside our heads and bodies. We're disconnected from our environment. We're at a loss to know how to care and steward the resources we've been given. We're disconnected from each other. Although we sometimes get a tantalizing taste of it, we often don't feel that we're in community. We feel misunderstood. We feel alienated. We feel alone. Whether it's the child in the playground or the adult in the office, we all know the sickness in the pit of our stomachs when we realize we're on the outside of that joke or not included to that trip to the pub or just out of it. And these disconnects within ourselves, around ourselves, amongst ourselves, are the consequences of a bigger disconnect overall, our disconnect from the one who made us. We've turned our backs, ridden, hidden from the one who gave us life. We've told lies about the only one who speaks truth. In not wanting to face our maker and his truth, we've put our hopes, dreams and fears in other things that don't deserve our worship. Desiring to be connected to this world is foolishness and tragic because it means a connection to a world that is cursed and perishing. From dust we came, from dust we will return. It ultimately means futility and darkness an eternal separation from our Creator. But let me offer you Jesus. Jesus is the true image of God, the second Adam, who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, who both proclaimed and ushered in another reality, another world, an amazing magnetic kingdom. And the kingdom has been brought about by an ultimate disconnection and reconnection. Jesus' death and resurrection. This kingdom can be entered into by turning around and trusting in Jesus. 
It's this kingdom that is both coming but is already present. It's a kingdom that's nothing other than God bringing all things together in their right place as what originally intended. Entering into this kingdom means the end of our search and rest from our restlessness. In this kingdom, nature is restored and perfected so people can commune with God and other human beings so that the common good is realized in a way that doesn't suppress but enables the flourishing of the individual. In this kingdom, we're cosmically connected but without having to be dissolved and lose our individuality. Taking one's stand in the new kingdom definitely means dying to self, but it means finding oneself anew in the resurrection. This is the ultimate dying and the ultimate rising to an eternal life. I no longer live. I live only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I could continue. Now, all I'm doing here is saying, at a very basic level, Jesus is the answer. And I could have just done that by going through a tract with someone or presenting a very simple gospel presentation. But what we're trying to do here is to say, these, this totality, this idea of connection, which people have horrendously suppressed and substituted, how do we show that Jesus both exposes the futility, the crack systems of where we've been trying to look for that totality, and how do we show how Jesus is the one who both subverts and fulfills? That's all we're doing. And I, you know, I mean, you might say, oh, that sounds really complicated. But how do we get traction with people who generally do not have any interest in what we are talking about? We know we're backing what the Bible says. They are religious. They are expressing these points. Now, I could go through the same, all of the magnet. Jesus, the way we live. Jesus says, do not come. I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but, but to fulfill them. To the point of norm and morals, we offer Jesus. Jesus' authority in, in a, an incredible way shows us a norm that both kind of critiques arch-conservatives and progressives at the same time. Jesus' authority is magnetic. He demonstrates the knowledge, the ethical character, the effectiveness that commands both love and obedience. Remember, in our society, love and obedience don't often go together. You can't love and obey. Our commitment to Christ as Lord breaks through that. Jesus offers a way of life within the fixed and constraining boundaries of God's holy law, there for human flourishing, not human withering. Yet he offers dependability. So Jesus offers the dependability and fixity that conservatives crave. And yet he offers compassion to the outcast, courage to take and take a stand against those who advocate sterile and deadly rules for rules' sake. In that way, Jesus is both radically progressive and authentically real. Or Jesus Christ is the way out. He is the answer to deliverance. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The enmity within ourselves, between ourselves, within the spiritual and natural realms that we long to be rescued for, has to be understood as a symptom rather than a cause, or as the fruit rather than the root. It's our enmity with God, his righteous wrath, and an eternity in hell that we need deliverance from, and which can only be dealt through the work outside of ourselves, through one mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and him alone. Outside of him, there is no hope. Now, such deliverance will mean a life of sacrifice. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. But it also means a life of blessing, the breaking in of a new cosmic order, 
No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The church, the church community. Jesus is the way we control. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Those people struggling with this idea of I'm, I'm insignificant or I'm being controlled by a malevolent force that when I say quiet, the phones ring or I feel massively oppressed. We can say we believe in a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The world is not chaotic and meaningless. It's not governed by capricious, finite gods or a grinding impersonal fate that makes us um, machines. Jesus said to the superpower of his day, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And the interplay between divine responsibility and um, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, never, while never fully explained or comprehended by our finite minds, has been graciously revealed to us in space and time in the death of Christ. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. And it's that Christian destiny which is so liberating and joyful. It's what Bavink says. The lot that is assigned a person is not some dark fate, nor is it cosmic determinism, but in the deepest sense is the unfolding plan of God. The dialogue that a person experiences between his or her activity and his or her destiny increasingly takes on the character of a dialogue between a child and its father. Finally, Jesus Christ is the way beyond. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is jumping up and down. Here I am. And so we need to call people to that. Now look, as I close here, that's, and this is an awful lot to take in, I, I know that. All that I am suggesting is that these magnetic points are really helpful, I think, in trying to make those connections in our conversations, in our preaching, um, in other ways as well. Tomorrow, I'm going to be looking at four different applications that we might want to use these magnetic points for in our evangelism, in our discipleship, um, in our, the study of religion, and in our civic engagement in society. But I do think these are nothing more than just the exposition of what it means for human beings to be running to God and running away from God, knowing and not knowing. Um, and uh, I think these are a very helpful tool framework, uh, which then we can show how Jesus both confronts and connects, subverts and fulfills. Um, so I offer that kind of magnetic analysis uh, to you.